Welcome back to Common Sense Medicine, a podcast which talks about why common sense isn't often common practice in medicine. I'm really excited to have Dr. Jimmy Turner with me. He's an anesthesiologist who also, if that wasn't enough, is part of a startup. He's a CMO and a um, co-founder of Attend, which is a startup which helps physicians with their finances, with their student loans. But more importantly, it's about physicians helping physicians. So with that, just wanted to introduce you and happy to have you on the show, Dr. Turner. Yeah, thanks for having me, Shree. Please call me Jimmy. <laughs> I'm I'm happy to be here and excited to uh, to dive in. Yeah, yeah. So Jimmy, I I really I think I got on the radar from one of my friends who told me about this startup, and I thought it was very interesting because I had been reading about physician personal finance for a while now, even before I got into medical school. A lot of physicians told me oh, you should start a Roth IRA, like you should do all of that. And I didn't really think about any of that because as a pre-med, I, my main goal was, okay, I just want to be a doctor, right? And I think I got it earlier than most. Even now, friends come to me and they ask me, hey, what should I do about my loans and stuff? And to be fair, like, I don't know much about the space. I think Attend is trying to solve that. So could you just speak more about Attend, why you got involved in it? And what's your story, I guess, coming to the startup world? Yeah, so I need to back up just a little bit. Um, yeah. So I, I did, uh, you know, anesthesia residency fellowship uh, at Wake Forest, North Carolina, and then uh, stayed on faculty there. And around that time, I was finishing up fellowship and really started diving into personal finance. So you were way ahead of where I was. I was financially <laughs> like illiterate, no knowledge, terrible yeah. personal finance habits all the way up until my fellowship. And when I started doing that, um, you know, I really dove in, uh, read the blogs, read the books listen to the podcast. I love teaching. That's why I stayed in academics. And, uh, and so I had people start asking me all the time, students, residents, fellows, colleagues, uh, Hey Jimmy, can you tell me this? Hey Jimmy, what about that? And, uh, ended up turning into requests to speak for different departments. So I realized there's kind of this huge need and, and I've always married burnout with financial independence. In fact, you know, I started the physician philosopher was the business I started in 2017 and uh, the tagline way back when used to be fighting burnout with financial independence. And the reason for that is because there, there's this intrinsic link, right, between, you know, burnout and high student loan debt burdens. We know that impacts which specialty you choose, you know, whether you go into academics or private practice when you decide to start a family, if you're going to do that. And so it has a profound impact and link. So I've always kind of viewed this as financial wellness, if you will. Um, and so if you fast forward five years, six years into that business, you know, it turned into a couple of books, a couple of podcasts, you know, I host money meets medicine still. And, uh, and yeah, a top five name in the space. I joined, you know, uh, uh, the most prominent network out there for physician finance bloggers. Um, and through that podcast, money meets medicine, I ended up, you know, my, my co-host actually introduced me to attend. She'd been, uh, Dr. Leisha Taylor, uh, working with them and, it was fascinating because I didn't really know much about the venture capital world. It just wasn't a thing. And I know we're going to talk about that. But when I met with them and their North Star was legitimately doing what's right for doctors, right? And they presented this opportunity to work with them to expand basically the same mission I'd had for the last six years, but at scale and with technology at my fingertips that I didn't have before. I mean, it, it really was a no-brainer because uh, we can dive into this if you want. But long story short... I ended up getting hurt by the financial industry when an insurance agent didn't do the right thing for me. And so yeah. from the very beginning, my goal, my mission has always been to, you know, put the people I serve ahead of profit, ahead of revenue, you know, trying to put people over profit. And uh, because of that, that mission, that alignment, that North Star to be the comprehensive financial solution that actually does what's best for doctors was highly appealing to me. And the chance to co-found an opportunity like that, you know, something I just couldn't pass up. Yeah, yeah. Your story is one that a lot of doctors ha resonate with. I think that we don't have time to understand the ins and outs of finance more than most people because just because of the virtue of the training that we're in, it's kind of all consuming. And finance is put on the back burner because I think you had mentioned this on another podcast, but money, politics, and uh, I think religion, that's like the three things that we don't like to talk about. And you're essentially talking about a third rail that no one wants to acknowledge in medicine. I will go as far to say, like, obviously, we don't want 
people sharing in the profits or the share shares of a hospital, right? Like we don't want to create perverse incentives, but by not creating those or not recognizing that it can influence some people's decisions. For example, you mentioned specialty choice. We're doing a disservice to having an honest conversation about these topics, right? Yeah, I, I think this is actually fascinating, right? So when I first started teaching these topics, I would get told no left and right, like in terms of making a formal curriculum for my med students or for residents. Now, you know, fast forward seven years and, I, and I'm doing both, interestingly. But when I first started on the journey, it really was tip of the spear. Like nobody wanted to talk about it because they're so concerned with teaching the wrong thing. And it's it's really troubling, right? Because the, the literature goes even further, right? High student loan burdens are actually linked to low lower in training exam scores, right? So as a residency really? GME program, right? Like in my view, you are ethically bound to help teach people about financial literacy. And the reason why is because their academic performance suffers, their career choices suffer, their family and home life suffers. So why wouldn't you do this knowing that, you know, the American Psychological Association, they do a study and shows that the number one stressor in American households is personal finance. It's money, right? And so for me, that's why I've always viewed this as a financial wellness topic. And, and I really do think that you are failing your trainees to some extent by not teaching them about these topics so that they don't have to worry about that stress and they can focus on learning how to be a good doctor, right? And so for me, that, that uphill battle has gotten a little bit easier as I've, I've gone along and built some legitimacy in the space. But conflicts of interest are, you know, Shri, to your point, a, a really important thing to consider. Um, but again, the, the hypocrisy, I just kind of laugh at it, right? Because we, we have doctors all over hospitals who have relationships with pharma and relationships with, yeah. you know, uh, you know, device manufacturers and we have reps in our, in our operating rooms. I'm an anesthesiologist, right? So, you know, we've got striker reps, you know, running around for the orthopedic surgeries and, and, yeah. and we don't have problems with all those things so long as we disclose conflicts. And yet when it comes to personal finance, we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is, this is something we need to slow down and think about. And I'm like, I just don't understand. Like we, we don't care about the things that impact medical care. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. We, we, we are, we're scared to death of, well, we used to be, it's opening yeah. up. It's the, the chance is there now. Well, I want to dive deep into that because you not only started your own business, but you're now co-founding another business, right? So you probably have this title of serial entrepreneur, right? <laughs> Added to your anesthesiologist bio. I wanted to dive into that latter half with your lessons that you learned. You were just chatting about how you learned a lot on the job and you were working even harder than you were working in residency, which is known to have 80 to 100 hour work weeks, right? And there's only 160 hours in the week. So I guess what were you doing with those extra leeway of hours that you were spending on your business? Yeah, so when I first started, um, and, and I, it's funny, there's two schools of thought when it comes to this. One is it's all about the hustle, right? You just got to hustle, 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 and that's how you get to your goals. The other one is, you know, basically if you hustle too hard, you eventually just burn yourself out and don't don't end up getting to your goals anyway. So you need to kind of you know, pace yourself, if you will, and like be smart about your boundaries. I started in the first camp. I land pretty solidly now in the second. Um, but yeah, so at the time I was you know, working about 50 to 60 hours a week as an attending. Um, I just finished training um, and I was spending another 20-ish hours a week on a blog that made absolutely no money, like no money, <laughs> zero money. Uh, I think I think by the end of like my first 12 months, I maybe broke even on the the $5,000 that I put in to start the business. And it might've even been 18 months. Um, and so, you know, it was really something that I had built a passion for and that's kind of what drove me, but I always did want it to be a business. The reason being that in order to help other people, you have to make things grow in order to make things grow. It has to bring in revenue, right? So sometimes people get bent out of shape. They're like, you know, doctors are profiting off other doctors. And it's like, no, this is like any other business. I'm sure that when, you know, someone comes to see me, right. As an anesthesiologist, and I do a thoracic epidural on you for your surgery. I do not feel bad sending you a bill for yeah. that service. Right. So I'm not going to feel bad in entrepreneurship either. Um, but yeah, there, there were a lot of lessons learned in that journeys from starting the physician philosopher. You know, I sold the personal finance side of my business. It was acquired by attend joining as a co-founder, chief medical officer there, um, and have done a variety of things from, you know, online coaching and courses and, uh, you know, the podcast and the blog and writing books. Uh, and so, you know, I, I was in some ways a serial entrepreneur within the same business for six years. Um, mm -hmm. And, and definitely learned a lot of lessons and kind of the implicit, implicit question there. Um, so fear is by far and away the biggest lesson, right? Fear is what keeps people from doing, you know, the next thing, right? So what they're afraid of is failure. 
mm-hmm. all of us that go into medicine, right? We've, we've walked the straight and narrow. We've gotten good grades. We've gotten to where we are. And, you know, yeah. failure is not something that we've experienced a ton of. And so in entrepreneurship, it's the opposite. You cannot fear failure. In fact, you got to embrace it. You, it's going to happen. You're going to fall flat on your face. You're going to try some product or line yeah. or service. It's not going to work. Um, and so for me, 60 hours a week in anesthesia, 20 hours a week on the blog, and then probably three or four years and started to transition where it became more hours in my business and less hours in anesthesia. At this point, I do two days of anesthesia per week and uh, spend the other three or four days working with a tent. Interesting. There's a lot to unpack there. I think to your point about being fearful, I always flip it on its head and be like biased towards action because even if you fail, you can bias yourself towards more action, right? Like you can learn from what you did and then work on something else. I think also when you talk about starting that business and learning a lot, there has to be revenue coming in, right? And a lot of people are like, oh, once you put money into something, it corrupts it, right? But at the end of the day, when you find something of value, the way we exchange value in this current world, this is what I try to tell people, like incentives drive action and the incentive for exchanging value in this world is, okay, I'm going to get some reward or monetary reward because that's the easiest to measure in the economy. When you think about attend and how your business model works as a win-win for physicians, like how exactly does attend make money when it manages these student loans when you're helping physicians. That's something that wasn't particularly clear to me. And I just was hoping that you could like elaborate on that as you're kind of working on this new part of this business. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So, so really, you know, to, to, to round out the conversation you just mentioned, so it's all about your return on investment, right? So yeah. if, if I tell you, Hey, you pay me $300 for a student loan consult, and then I'm going to show you that you're, we're going to prevent you from making a hundred thousand dollar mistake. Yeah. Like, would you pay somebody for that? The answer is yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, and you know, when it comes to, to business models, right, the, there has to be some, some profit built in so that you can grow the business, reach more people and provide that same service. And so from a business side of things, you know, the, the consults, they, they cost, you know, depends two to $500, depending on your situation and the complexity of it. Uh, but the more complex, usually the more savings there is to be had. And with that, you know, it's, it's a simple question. Like, would, would you pay $500? to not make a $400,000 mistake. I've got a friend at work who refinanced his student loan, should have gone for mm-hmm. public service loan forgiveness, yeah. is now paying $400,000 out of his own pocket. Jeez. <laughs> right? And so like, yeah. like this is this is very, very measurable uh, yeah. and easy to measure. One one way that we're, we're really trying to be thoughtful at Attend about the way that we structure things is that, that insurance agent that didn't do the right thing for me, part of the reason that that happened is because insurance agents – traditionally in the space earn commission, right? They get paid for the product that they sell to you. Right. And so every person that you interact with at attend is, is paid a flat salary. No one is incentivized through commissions to sell you a product. That's gotcha. very unique in the space. Um, and, and something that we're, you know, we're really proud of, uh, in terms of, you know, helping people. And there are also ways that we, we try to help people that are in training, right? Like we, I've been a resident. I know what it's like to be there. Mm-hmm. I know how tight money is. And so people can, you know, pay for their student loan console over four months instead of getting hammered with a $600 bill up front, yeah. you know, it's 0% interest. We also lower rates for, for residents, um, so that it is, it's more affordable. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, so there, there are several ways that we're trying to structure those incentives that you mentioned in such mm-hmm. a way that, that no one's ever incentivized to do the wrong thing for somebody. And we're, we're really proud of that because, uh, you know, there are companies out there that have extremely high denial rates and disability insurance, which, you know, my story, that's a big problem. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, we, we want that number to be as close to zero as we could possibly make it. We don't, you know, ever want somebody to get denied. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, cause that's a, a big financial moment in their life, whether they realize it or not. Yeah. Well, why don't we dive into that? So I did some research before the pod and I think your story about getting denied for disability insurance, it was the first time that I've heard of, ever heard that like people get denied for having a past medical issue. And I assume that a lot of med students, sometimes even doctors, I was talking to an attending pathologist that I was working with, and he said that he didn't have time to go to the doctor. He was just too busy working on this department that was shuttering. There's like job shortages and stuff, right? But even those who do go to the doctor, if they have a past medical history, then they get denied for disability insurance. Could you just dive into your story and why you kind of got very galvanized about this particular space? Yeah. So when I was a fourth year med student, uh, right where you are, we, uh, we had our first kid and so she's 12 now. And when we, when we had grace, 
know, we wanted to get term life insurance so that if something happened to my wife or to me that, you know, the family would be taken care of, whoever's left behind. And uh, the insurance agent I approached was actually the brother of one of my medical school classmates. And so it was interesting, right, because I know nothing about money. And, and I'm like, great, you know, this is someone I can trust because it's the brother of my medical school classmate. I didn't understand at the time that good people in bad environments or bad cultures can do bad things. Uh, I know yeah. that now, uh, which is why incentives that you're mentioning are so important. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so essentially I didn't have an income. It ended up talking me into to applying for what what's called a private you know, disability insurance policy, right? It's individually owned. It's fully underwritten. And that fully underwritten piece means that they look into your medical history. Mm. Now, the background is I have an essential tremor. I take propranolol for that. Um, I also have an ADHD diagnosis remotely. And so uh, essentially I got denied because I had a medical history. And it didn't seem like the end of the world at the time. Uh, but when you get to residency, most residency programs have available to trainees something called the guaranteed standard issue policy, which basically says it's guaranteed so long as you haven't been disabled, mm. you haven't been denied. And so had I waited, which that insurance mm. agent, if they were good at their job, should have known, uh, and referred me to the GSI plan because I had a medical history, I could have gotten mm. disability insurance. And this is super important because if you don't have an income, none of the rest of personal finance matters. And so I would argue that disability insurance is the number one financial task for a physician. As soon as you get to residency, have an income, I think it's something you need to tackle uh, because you're never going to be more insurable, right? So if you fast forward, I end up having Graves disease and anxiety yeah. and a panic attack on a golf course and whole nine yards, found out my, you know, my TSH was undetectable, <laughs> uh, which apparently is a problem. And, uh, and so I ended up, you know, having even more medical problems. Like I am unbelievably yeah. uninsurable at this point, but yeah. So if you have any medical problems going through that fully underwritten process where they look into your medical history is a problem. And what happens is two things. One, people don't wait for that GSI, that guaranteed plan. And the second is sometimes they'll talk to insurance agents and we've actually had this happen, you know, at its end where people are initially scared. They're like, well, I don't really want to tell you everything, right? Because like, what if someone else, the medical board or whoever finds it out? And when mm -hmm. it comes to disability insurance, by the way, agents don't share that with medical boards, but, um, yeah. but there's a fear there, right? And so what happens is the insurance company, like, I mean, they, they will call your doctor. They will take a deep dive into your records for like the last five or six years. And if they find something, right, you're like, oh, you know, I'm completely healthy. You're like, okay, have you been to your doctor at all in the last five years? Like, well, you know, when I was a, a second year medical student, I, I did go talk to my doctor about the test anxiety I had because step one was coming up, right? And you're like, okay, so now you have an anxiety diagnosis on your chart. You're like, well, no, I don't have anxiety. I just had the disability insurance company does not care. You have anxiety, <laughs> Right. Hmm. And so um, you just have to be really careful with the stuff because most insurance agents won't make money selling you a guaranteed standard issue policy. And so they will not tell you about it, even if it's the right thing for you. So so does that mean that as a resident, you're covered, but then after you graduate residency, you're going to have to go through this underwriting process anyways? No. Good question. So the GSI plan is typically only available during training and for the three to six months after training. After that, it's gone. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've had people that, you know, 12 months out of training, say, hey, you know, I need to get disability insurance. And um, they've got, you know, a, a medical diagnosis that would exclude them and they can't get it now. So it's just during training. But what the GSI does is that it locks you into a policy. And then when you finish, you can increase the amount of benefit that you need because you make more money as an attending physician later on without having to go through any other medical history or exam. Hmm. And if you're completely healthy, a fully underwritten policy is great. It's often cheaper. It often has better bells and whistles. You can often have a higher benefit if you get disabled. And so it, it's not that a fully underwritten policy is bad. It's what you want if you have no medical problems. Mm -hmm. And you can get, you know, a, uh, you know, what's called a benefit increase rider added onto your policy that allows you to skip that medical exam later on, right? Mm -hmm. So it locks in your health history now so that when you finish training, you don't have to get a medical exam and medical history taking then. So there are ways to prevent that, that, from happening down the road when you need to get more. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's super interesting. What are some other very big financial lessons that you've learned along the way or that you've seen in the people that came to you ad hoc as you were starting this business that you really want to impress upon people before they graduate medical school, graduate residency, when they start their career? Yeah. So when you're graduating medical school, uh, you know, so the book that I wrote in, in chronological order for a reason, because the things that you need to do at each stage are different. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're in medical school, the name of the game is, you know, re reducing and just preventing debt, right? Mm -hmm. When you get to residency, the name of the game is get disability insurance and come up with a student loan plan 
and assume that you're going to do public service loan forgiveness until you know you are 1,000% certain you're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, again, to limit debt, don't rack up a bunch of credit card debt. So 10 to 15% of residents have credit card debt, revolving yeah. credit card debt. Um, you know, and then you start working on some of the smaller tasks, right? Like building an emergency fund, right? So for a resident, that might be a thousand dollars. Yeah. You become yeah. an attending physician, it's three to six months of your your living expenses. Mm-hmm. Um, the investing piece depends, right? So if you if I'm walking you through the order, right? Minimizing yeah. debt, having a plan for your debt, getting disability insurance, having an emergency fund, getting rid of credit card debt, um, kind of, you know, those things up until that point. That's the point at which people are like, well, if I have extra money, what do I do with it? Right. So that's when investing comes into play. Um, when you finish training, I think that one of the biggest mistakes that doctors make is that they don't work backwards. They they don't think about, Hey, what age do I want Mm. to be able to retire? Like what is the age by which I want to be able to practice medicine? Cause I want to, and not because Mm. I have to. Right. And if you don't think about that, what often happens, I I mean, I've had friends walking down the hall at work at the (laughs) hospital and uh, they'll stop and be like, hey, Jimmy, guess what? And I'm like, what? What happened? And they're like, I finally maxed out my, you know, my 403B. <laughs> and I'm like doing the math in my head. I'm like, man, they've been out for seven years. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Like thinking about the time value of Maybe money. Maybe 10K a year. Like, oh, my. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, so the max is 22500 yeah, yeah, now. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, man, they, yeah. they might have been putting five or ten in. Yeah. And you know, and I'm like, man, that, that that is like a multi, multi six-figure mistake. <laughs> Uh, when you're when doing the DCF, like, as you're oh, like... It's bad. yeah. And so like, you know, I, naturally the way that that conversation goes in real life yeah. is I get my high five and say, Hey, congrats. I'm proud of you. That's great. <laughs> uh, and in my head, I'm like, Oh my God, they cost themselves so much money by not investing sooner. And yeah. so delaying investing because you want to inflate your lifestyle is a really, really big problem in the physician space. And so there's something called the Diderot effect, which is mm-hmm. basically when you're, when your lifestyle increases, dramatically and suddenly just like an nfl athlete or an actress entertainer uh, you will spend that money unless you know that psychological phenomenon happens and so you have to know that that's coming when your when your paycheck goes up from fifty thousand dollars to (laughs) you know four hundred thousand dollars overnight you need to know that you need to start investing that money uh and most people just go buy the doctor house and doctor car and the whole nine yards no no for sure i think I call it the, the the meat and potatoes stack of personal finance. It's like emergency fund, then reduce debt, and then work your way up to this investing philosophy. Now that I, I think I think a lot of people can find those basics elsewhere, but I guess the net new knowledge that I'd like to know from you, having been an expert in the space, is as a resident, say that I know everyone's personal situation is different, but say that you're at that stage where like I can comfortably invest that money. Would it be better or to, to invest in, in, in a Roth IRA because your 401k, while that's like a percentage of pre-tax income, you can't touch that money. Like, or it's, it's post-tax, so you're at a lower taxable rate as you're a resident. Would you suggest starting like a Roth before your 401k, like pre-tax deductions? Or would you say that, okay, let's contribute even if my income is $60,000? Yeah. So as with anything in personal finance, yeah, it depends. It depends. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, large scale, like general education stuff, um, a couple of different ways to think about this. One is that your tax bracket when you're in training yeah. is the lowest it's ever going to be. Right. So, uh, you would rather pay the taxes now and that means pay the taxes and then invest. That's called Roth. Yeah. So people often say, you know, Roth resident, like R, right. <laughs> um, and pre-tax when you get to your peak earning year. So RRPP, right? So peak yeah. earning years, pre-tax. That, that's not bad advice. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's well-known, kind of established educational, you know, narratives in this space. The only caveat to that is, right, is that as a trainee, and actually, you know, if you're in, in an income-driven repayment program at yeah. all, it is driven by your income, which is your adjusted gross income yeah. minus your discretionary income, Right. And so any pre-tax contributions that you make reduce your student loan payment, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you, if you are going to invest, you're in residency, you have extra money to, to put away true. somewhere, um, then you know that's something to consider because it may actually lower your student loan payment and allow you to invest even more. Yeah. Um, and the second thing is, is that n- not every training program has this, but if you have a match at your residency program, which some programs do, uh, you never want to skip your match ever because it's an immediate 100% return on your investment, yeah. right? It's free money. Uh, and so 
if you put money into a Roth IRA and not into your institutional, you know, 403B, 401k, you're mm-hmm. missing that match, which is also not wise. So if you have a match, I think your 403B or 401k is a very, very reasonable place to put your money. Um, I will say that there's something called vesting, mm-hmm. uh, which means how long do I have to stay at this institution to keep my money that they gave me? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you're a family medicine resident and you're there for three years and the vesting schedule says you have to stay for four, uh, you're not going to get to keep that money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that said, if you, if you're going to meet the vesting schedule, you have matching at your institution, a pre-tax contribution makes a lot of sense. If you don't Roth investing makes a lot of sense because of the tax bracket argument, all that said, if you have student loans, like 75% of doctors do, yeah. then you got to factor that into calculation. No, no, makes sense. I think that's wise words. I actually didn't know about the vesting period for residents. And I thought that if you were a resident, then a vesting period would be logically when you graduate residency but i guess that means that you have to do you have to sign a job offer for another year in order to invest in that situation see so it's just an employment situation right so you have to be employed by the employer for however many years they say um you know i I imagine every institution is different but probably most of the time they're just going to make it a the same thing for all employees Mm -hmm. so if you're there for three years and they say you have to be there for four you don't get to keep it Wow. Now it could be wow. you have to be there for two years, in which case yeah. every resident outside of you know people that do categorical um, or advanced you know placement for their intern year would get to keep it, right? Yeah, it just depends. Yeah. You have to check with your HR. That's interesting. That's interesting. And at the risk of making this more of a personal finance decision, I know that you talk about refinancing with a uh, private lender, right? Like people are leaving money on the table and a 10 is kind of helping you guide that decision, right? Why do you think that at least around student loan management, doctors are so bad at like thinking about the expected value of like doing one decision over another, like, you know, it's $300 is a lot of money as a resident, but people don't think about the $100,000 they're leaving on the table, right? Like, how do you think about sales, to residents who are already averse to kind of talking about money. So, you know, it's interesting because the the savings are often immediate, right? Yeah. If you were, if you were married Mm -hmm. and we were on the calculations and show you that when you've married file separately, you're going to save $200 a month on your payments. I, you're literally going to make your money back in a month and a half. Right. Mm. And so I I just kind of was at laugh at this because like big picture. Yeah. It's a six figure number oftentimes. Um, yeah, I think that, uh, Average that we consult on is like you know four or five hundred thousand um, dollars in terms of stu- you know, student loan burden, and um, it's it's interesting because there really is an immediate return, you know, a lot of the time. Uh, Long term, there's always a return uh, for getting these consults, and it's not always complicated. Right? If you're a single resident, you know, and you have no outside income, like save is a great plan. It's going to be the right plan for the vast majority of people, um, and so you know you can lean that way. But in terms of your like refinancing. Kind of, yeah. you know, question there. This is actually something that's kind of really burned me up recently because I actually got an email forwarded to me the other day from a from a physician company, mm-hmm. um, and they were basically telling people that, hey, we, you know, we just partnered with you know such and such a company that I'm not going to name because I don't want to give them any any airtime <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh, to to help you refinance your loans. And it, like for me, this this is borderline unethical, and the, and the reason why is because at, at the top of any email that discusses refinancing. Partic- well, not even particularly right now, just in general, there should be like this giant, like red bolded, highlighted, you know, rainbow colored thing that basically says, if you refinance your student loans, you can never do public service loan forgiveness right, ever again. Right. Like yeah. once you leave the federal system and you privately refinance, it's gone forever. Yeah. That's a catastrophic financial mistake with your student loans. But, you know, you'll have companies that'll say, hey, you know, refinance with this, you know, this company, we partner with them, or you'll have a friend that said, hey, I had a great experience with X, Y, and Z. You should and they don't realize they're giving bad advice or at worst they do. And they're telling you to refinance because they get money. Every company that does that, they get a kickback from the other company when you refinance through them. Mm-hmm. Right. Gotcha. So talk about incentives and conflicts of interest right. earlier, right? That's the conflict that exists. They get that $750 kickback because you refinance through this company. Oh, but by the way, they didn't tell you that you can't do PSLF anymore if you do that. Mm. That makes right? sense. And so, and so it, it, there, there are in very immediate returns on these things. You're thinking like, oh, yeah, I was going to refinance with so-and-so, and it turns out that you know staying in public service loan forgiveness is going to save you $500,000. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not too hard to sell. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, I'm familiar with these terms. Do you mind just explaining to the audience what PSLF, save, all of these terms that you're throwing out are? 
Yeah, so PSLF is public service loan forgiveness. So that's the federal program that if you have direct federal loans, um, you can get forgiven tax-free, which I'm sure you'll find this interesting since you <laughs> like personal finance. Yeah. I did a uh, I did a survey one time of the 750 residents and fellows at Wake, and I give talks on this all the time too, yeah. in a true or false format mm-hmm. when I ask people, PSLF, public service loan forgiveness, when you get that debt forgiven, it's forgiven tax-free, true or false, right? Mm-hmm. And 50% of the time, like, I mean, it's, it's hilarious. It's a 50-50 split. And oftentimes it's like 60% false, 40% yeah. true. The answer is true. It is, yeah. it is in fact, tax-free, tax-free forgiveness. Uh, and, and most people don't know that, right? Mm-hmm. And so it is um, a forgiveness program. You make 120 payments working for a qualifying employer, which 80% of hospitals are, mm-hmm. another mistake people make. And you have to work 30 hours a week or full-time. And then you get all of your money discharged mm. for free. It's yeah. I mean, you make your payments, 120 payments, it's gone. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the 120 qualifying payments for working at a nonprofit, right? Like that's the stipulation. Yeah. So it has to be, uh, you know, state organization, VA, nonprofit, gotcha. 501c3 um, sort of situation. But it's, and it doesn't have to be 120 consecutive payments. And by the way, all of those payments you make in training when they're mm-hmm. often very, very low count. That works. And, and um, does that uh, just just to kind of harp on this topic, like I know that there's different income driven forms of like pay, repay. Is that part of PSLF? Like, are you also enrolled in these other programs while also in PSLF? Is that true? Yeah, they try to make it as complicated as they can. Yeah. I mean, it, it is it is laughable, like living yeah. in a space, how complicated this stuff is. And every time you're like, oh, like, you know, I've got it. And then the government comes out and they change something else. So, yeah. uh, so what it's going to be in the future, so pay as you earn is going away. And eventually mm-hmm. it'll only be two plans. It'll be save. So saving for a valuable education. Um, gotcha. Revised pay as you earn is becoming save. Yeah. Right? So those are the same thing, basically. Gotcha. And then there's going to be a new IBR. So an income-based repayment. Gotcha. Those are the two programs 15 months from now that <laughs> you can choose. And yeah. those are the income driven repayment programs that you have to be in, in order to get public service loan forgiveness. Gotcha. So if, gotcha. if you're in a different program, other than those two, 15 months from now, there are four right now, repay, pay, save, IBR, technically uh, income contingent repayment will still exist to some extent. Um, yeah. That said, those are all income driven repayment programs. They are federal programs. You have to be in one of those. Gotcha. During your 120 payments to get forgiveness. And it has to be a federal loan, correct? Not any private federal, loan, which yeah, fe- kind of is. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the checklist is federal direct loan, working for yeah. a qualifying employer full-time or at least 30 hours a week. And you have to be in a qualifying repayment program. So an IDR program like save or pay or IBR. Right, right. Yeah, thanks for all of that information. I think that's very helpful to our medical student and resident listeners who just ask me a lot about this stuff. And even I, I, I'm truth be told, I didn't know about the tax-free aspect of this loan forgiveness. A lot of people ask, like, is this going to be added to my um, tax returns and am I going to have to pay these taxes? I think because of the 0% interest moratorium that happened because of COVID and the public health emergency, a lot of people are now waking up to the realization that they're going to have a very big bill to pay. And they're like, that's going to be my month's income. What am I going to do? And it's kind of in panic mode when they weren't thinking about it, especially during residency when you're studying for boards, studying for in-service exams, et cetera. Um, At the risk of just keeping this to personal finance, I'm going to switch topics right now and just talk about your um, non-clinical careers. A lot of doctors have come to me, not just for that finance stuff that I'm kind of interested in, but also around this idea of let me take some time off to do something non-clinical. And as someone who straddles both worlds, I'm curious to know about what you tell people when they're saying, okay, I want to make that switch. First, why do you think that's happening? And then second, what do you advise them to kind of dip their toes into if they're saying, I'm interested in entrepreneurship, Jimmy, what do I do? Yeah. So so one thing I will say is that entrepreneurship can happen inside of medicine, mm-hmm. right? So you, you can become a private you know, practice owner and be an entrepreneur and buy a building and service people out of that. So you don't have to leave medicine per se to be an entrepreneur. Uh, but there is very much a growing movement of, you know, physician side gigs, uh, non-clinical income, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, and the reason why, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the reason why is my, my suspicion is, and I, and I can tell you from my experience, what entrepreneurship has provided me that medicine could not is autonomy. So I have more control over my schedule, right? So I'm able to coach my kids, you know, soccer teams and football teams. And I, I can yeah. go to 
you know, my daughter's, you know, Taekwondo practice and, and I can, you know, be there for all of those things that I want to be there for. Cause my, you know, we, we had kids young and I don't want to miss those moments. I don't want to have to wait until I'm, you know, 55 and be like, Oh, I miss my, my kid's entire childhood. And now I get to hang out mm-hmm. with my grand, my grandkids. Like I want to be there and be involved as a husband, as a dad. And so entrepreneurship allows me to control my schedule in a lot, you know, more just holistic way than medicine does. Um, you know, and, and then of course there, you know, there's a burnout narrative there, right? Where, you know, 50% of doctors are burned out. We have the highest rate of suicide of any profession. Um, so there are clearly problems inside of medicine that are pushing doctors away. And that could be, you know, things as simple as the electronic medical record system or, you know, insurance oversight and pre-authorizations and the whole host of, you know, other things that people just eventually get tired of and say, Hey, is there something else that I can do with the skills that I've developed in medicine? Uh, and, and the answer is yes, right? There are non-clinical gigs and, and some of these are not quote unquote leaving medicine. There's all, there's always the haters out there. They're like, Oh, you're just, you know, quitting. They should have given your medical school spot to somebody else. Like a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of, you know, ugly things that get said. And, and for me, you know, I, I can say at least my journey, um, I very much think that the work that I'm doing is going to empower physicians and, and make medicine better because when you have more financially independent doctors, you have more people that can practice medicine on their terms, the way they feel like it should be practiced as opposed to being at the beck and whim of their employer, yeah. right? They can stand up and say, no, I'm not going to do that because it's not the right thing to do. And they can threaten getting rid of that person. And guess what? It doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. And so I think there are a lot of people that feel like medicine has to change from the outside because we've tried to change it from the inside for so long. It's just not going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. and there's also, you know, it is what it is, right? Be, you know, being the boss, uh, yourself provides some autonomy that being an employee at a large organization where you feel like a cog in the wheel or a number on a spreadsheet doesn't, you know, provide you the same amount of autonomy. Yeah. Yeah. I hesitate to say that going into non-clinical careers or taking your career in a different direction would provide you that autonomy, but I definitely believe that starting your own business, being responsible for your own PNL is a more tangible way to get the results that you want. Because like I said, like capital is what drives this economy, right? To your point about revenue drives growth, right? It kind of helps you get maintain that power. And um, I think one of the authors that I think read about, I think it was a simple path to wealth. He said, it's F you money, right? Like it's, it's, yeah. it's able to be walking away from the table when people are telling you, okay, you're doing, you're, you're sacrificing your priorities, like going to a Taekwondo class or a soccer game for working more for a corporation that you don't particularly care all that much about. I think to your point about, you can be an entrepreneur in medicine, you could start your own practice. I think you talked about this in another podcast, but Essentially, there's a loss of autonomy because there are corporations being brought up, bought out because the practice of medicine is changing. One, it's becoming more commoditized. And second, it's tending toward this idea of bigger retail provides more scales and economy of scales. So to have that risk spread out across a population, right? So the sicker patients subsidize, sorry, the sicker patients are subsidized by the more healthier ones. That's why we want bigger practices. So private equity and other kind of buzzwords. I I don't want to say private equity because it's kind of like a buzzword for this is the boogeyman of medicine, but it's kind of around this idea of consolidation and the soulless aspect to corporations driving care. And I think that to your point about being an entrepreneur in medicine, it's becoming harder and harder to do so. And you even said that we tried changing it from the inside. It's not working. And a lot of doctors have some trepidation about dipping their toe because there's a lot of regulation and a lot of reporting requirements that one person businesses can't really do. They need like a whole team of coders and billers to navigate the Byzantine claims processes, right? So I think my question is, how should a doctor think about being an entrepreneur in medicine when they're, the the asymmetry is so high or the barrier to entry is so seemingly insurmountable insurmountable yeah you know just like anything else you're gonna you're gonna have to look for people that have kind of gone that road right yeah. so I, I you know i've got a coaching background i'm a big believer in coaching and yeah. so speaking about roi yeah. right if, if you can find somebody that's done what you want to do yeah and can speed up your journey i would highly encourage you to seek that person out and to, to have them help you uh accomplish that that task that goal of of you know building your own practice you know if that's a brick and mortar thing like you want um, 
And and it's you know I've seen other people start telemedicine companies. I've seen people start infusion clinics, you know, ketamine infusion clinics, uh, yeah. for example. Um, although ketamine's interestingly <laughs> been on a shortage for the vast majority of the year as an yeah. acute pain doc, uh, it's been painful. Uh, I guess for, I guess for my patients, <laughs> um, you know. And so it's uh, it, it's something that you probably don't want to figure out on your own, mm-hmm. right? Like you don't want to try to reinvent the wheel. That's not that's probably not the best way to go about that. Yeah. So finding a practice that already has that structure set up is like you said, becoming more and more rare. Uh, the, you know, the, the number of docs that are employed is increasing. Uh, and so it, it is, it's, it's a challenge. It's an uphill battle and it is a complicated system, but uh, it can be done. I would yeah. suspect with, you know, you'd want to seek the help of someone else that's probably gone down that journey already. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise it's probably going to feel like practicing <laughs> medicine without going to medical school, yeah. uh, which is probably not ideal. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I would lean on people that have, that have taken your journey. Mm-hmm. What, what, has a coach told you that provided you the most ROI on the advice that they gave you? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know if I've ever answered that one. Um, off the top of my dome, I would say uh, I had a coach, you know, kind of walk me through the process of like why my business was so stressful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you and I off air were, you know, yeah. I was mentioning that. Uh, so I'm an anesthesiologist, right? When people, when I make mistakes, people, people die. Yeah. Uh, but I feel so well-trained at what I do that that's honestly not as stressful as running a business. Um, mm-hmm. and so I was running this business. It was extremely stressful. Last thing I thought about going to bed. First thing I thought about waking up and, um, and this kind of pointed out to me, like, you know, you don't have to do this all on your own. Cause as a solopreneur, you very much feel like you have to. And so in thinking through that, there's been a couple occasions where I've brought somebody in to offload something. And, you know, I was initially worried about the the cost of bringing that person in, in terms of like you make X revenue, you've got Y expenses that produces, you know, Z profit. You obviously don't run a business by yourself uh, mm-hmm. to, to not make any money from it. Um, and bringing that person in was a total game changer. And, and actually, interestingly, in that situation was my sister, uh, <laughs> who is amazing, an amazing human being. But I'm not a detail oriented person, a, a process driven person, if you will. I'm an abstract, complicated problem solver. And, mm-hmm. um, and so she was able to like button up all of these, like just loose ends that I'd created over the last like five years, uh, yeah. really, really made an amazing impact on my business. What are the processes that prove to be most helpful? Uh, inside the business you mean? Yeah. yeah. So, so when, when you're serving people, right, you want there to be a very smooth onboarding process. You want there to be, you know, to some extent customer relations when some people have issues, Right, you you want the things to to flow smoothly, so you have a payment processor set up, for example, uh, and then when someone comes into your your online business, right, they subscribe to, you know, this certain landing page that has this certain you know goal, right? You want that person tagged with a certain thing, so you're like, okay, right. I know what this person's interested in, so that I can then serve them material that they may want to see, yeah. right? And then I want them to get, uh, you know, a series of automated emails that yeah. other people don't get because they're not interested in that topic, right? And then when they get that, I want to make sure that, you know, they have the help that they need and the, and the, the services that we provide are put in front of that person that may not be put in front of someone else. Mm-hmm. And so just making sure all of those things happen. And, and from like a consumer side, when you, you know, buy something or sign up for something, it just kind of all seems like, it just happens, right? Like you just get these emails, but what you don't realize is like, there's a CRM in the background, you know, this, uh, you know, customer management system, basically in the background, that's, that's helping that company do everything. Yeah. Right. And so automating all that once makes you never have to do it manually ever again. Right. But to do that, you have to set up the process, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think CRMs are a game changer. I feel like a lot of businesses have been built about Salesforce consultants coming in just to help you set it up once so you don't have to think about it ever again. Yep. I mean, yeah. it's, it's it's a thing. Maybe your <laughs> sister really can is. have a side gig on setting that up for other people too. You know, I, I think that was probably, she's probably one and done at this point. Uh, yeah. she, uh, she, she, she's a nurse in uh, gotcha. Pacific Northwest and really, really loves it. Um, and uh, she was doing it because she got to hang out with her little brother a little more. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I think that one of the things that we kind of discount with business building and really thinking about taking that risk is the the fear of failure and working towards the eventual goal. What are some of the biggest failures that you've faced starting Money Matters Medicine and then all of the books that you've written? Yeah, so so the the fears and the obstacles are are an interesting thing, right? So there's uh Ryan Holiday is, is a stoic author. Mm-hmm. 
talks about the obstacle not being, you know, in the way the obstacle is the way. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I do think there's a bit of stoicism you have to take towards entrepreneurship where you recognize, you know, like, you know, Edison, like I didn't, I didn't fail 10,000 times. I found 10,000 ways yeah. it didn't work. Uh, you know, and, and if you like start cataloging, all, cataloging all the people who have said the same stuff, right. Yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, he's like, you know, you can't know success if you don't know failure. I mean, like, like there's so many examples of people trying to teach the same exact thing. And it's hilarious because in my experience, these sort of things have to be learned experientially, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have to go through it as a lived experience yourself. People can tell you this, but until, until you do it, you just don't really understand. It's like getting married or having kids. Like, yeah. like people can talk to you all about it, but until it happens. Right. So for me, um, you know, one of the things being a, a natural people pleaser, I, I like to say I'm a recovering people pleaser yeah. was, you know, offending people, right? Like I was scared to death because in, in today's society and culture, there's no way you're going to put your hands on a keyboard or talk in front of a microphone and not make somebody angry. It's just not possible. Somebody's going to have an opinion about it. And so getting over the fear of judgment is a huge one. Getting over the fear of being perceived as a failure uh, is, is another one that was really huge. Um, And being okay with people's judgment, even if they think you're a failure. Right. So I, I would often say, you know, you can either be judged or you can be ignored. Right. So if you put yourself out there, you yeah. will get judged. The only other option is to, and actually the, the thing behind me on the, on the walls we're recording this is the, the man in the arena, right? Mm. You can, you can put yourself in the arena, yeah. right? And you're going to have blood and dust and, you know, be marred while you're doing it and be, you know, criticized by the critic, yeah. or you can just never step into the arena, right? Yeah. Those are your only two choices. And so for me, um, that, that judgment was a big one, uh, that I experienced pretty early in my journey. And, um, was extremely hard to deal with the first time that happened. Yeah. I think the first year or first few months of just learning the ropes on how to start a business, what's my customer, like what's the business plan? How am I going to get this revenue? How am I going to actually convince people to give me money as a fledgling entrepreneur? That I think is the crucible that everyone has to get over before they are off to the races, basically. Yeah. So, so the, the, and this came from a coach too. The thing that really changed my, my, my view on that is sales is service, mm-hmm. right? Sales, sales is not sleazy. Yeah. Right. But my, my job is not to take people's money so that I can make money and bring it home and like, you know, screw somebody out of, you know, the money that they have. Like that's, yeah. that's not the goal. The goal is, you know, recognizing that the transformation is often in the transaction, right? Mm-hmm. When people take a bet, they, they bet on themselves and the product that you're selling to help them get to whatever their solution is that they're looking for. Yeah. And when you help people make that transition through sales, you're helping them become a better person or providing them a service that helps make their life easier, right? Yeah. So for, for me, seeing sales as service as opposed to uh, trying to connive people out of money <laughs> was, yeah. was, a big, was a big thing. Yeah, I think... Those lessons is a great way to kind of round out this discussion. Just have a couple few fun questions to talk about. Yeah. One is, I know you're a huge car guy. We were talking about this before. Like one of the most esoteric like research things that I was doing is you drive a manual Cadillac, which is on brand for a personal finance guru who talks about, okay, we need to keep our expenses low. But if you were to have any car of your dreams, what, what would be your favorite car? You know, I'm not going to lie to you. I love my car. I, I love, <laughs> I love my car. And, uh, and, and I've driven, I've driven other cars and, and I'll say like this, I, th- you have to balance your money, right? Mo- mm-hmm. Money is a means to an end, it's yeah, not the yeah. end itself. And so for me, like cars are my financial quote unquote faux pas, although I don't owe any money on that car. Um, that said, uh, it'd have to be a manual transmission, right? It would have to have a decent amount of horsepower, be able to handle well. Yeah. And unfortunately nowadays that puts you in a very, very, like rare, yeah. like it just doesn't exist, right? So yeah, if you think yeah. about it, you've got the CT4 Blackwing, which is what yeah. I drive. You got the CT5. You've got you know the M3 and M5 BMWs. Yeah. I mean, there's there's not a lot of other four door <laughs> sedans now. If, if you yeah, get into yeah. like you know two two door cars, but right now that's not my dream car, and the reason why is because I got three like kids and I want something. them being in the yeah I want yeah. them being in the backseat yeah, saying yeah. Daddy go faster. Right? Yeah, like that, that's part of my dream car right yeah, now. Yeah. Now you know. If, Ten years from now, when I can, you know, drive a two door coupe or a convertible or something yeah, like that, yeah. I might have a different answer for you. Yeah, you you told me about soccer games. I'm like, maybe he's driving a minivan too. Like in the future, no, it wouldn't be you. Uh, <laughs> my my, my wife my wife has a swagger wagon, and honestly, yeah. <laughs> uh, also known as a minivan. 
And uh, in the garage, it's hilarious because just the way that it worked out, both of our cars are like black on black on black. Like our windows are black, wow. the paint's black, <laughs> the rims are black. So it, yeah, like, it's like it tinted windows, like ba- everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like it's like Batman's garage. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. And you were talking about a bunch of philosophy topics. I think you talked about um, Milgram's experiment on one other podcast, and you talked about Obstacle is the Way uh, by Ryan Holiday. Are there books that really made you think that made you question a lot of business principles or life principles along the way that you would recommend to a medical student resident mostly me is going to be putting on my to to read list but um yeah any any books that you would recommend any any student who's resident a resident yeah so some some of the ones i think from a business perspective that i think are helpful um, never split the difference, mm-hmm. which is a fantastic. Have you read that book, Shree? Yeah, yeah, it's about negotiation, right? I haven't read it fantastic personally, book. but it's on my to read list from someone else, actually. Fa- fa- fantastic <laughs> book, um, and and actually a really good read too. Gotcha. Uh, Think again by Adam Grant is another one mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, um, and the reason why is because it's really easy to hold on to your ideas mm-hmm. and just to really like firmly believe that they're true. And unfortunately, when we do that to a really strong extent. We don't consider that maybe other people's views are correct, and and that that limits you. So his entire book is about the ability to to have an open enough open enough mind that you can think again, right? Which helps you get to solutions that you may not have otherwise seen, right? right. So, um, so that, that's a, a you know a, a fantastic book as well. Um, I'm I'm also a Simon Sinek fan. Uh, you know, so he's got a book called Leaders Eat Last, yeah. um, which I, I think is a, a wonderful book. You know, in terms of leadership and management styles. Um, and I'm currently working my way through, uh, Horowitz's, uh, you know, uh, the hard thing about hard things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, which, which I found to be, you know, pretty good too, but that's, that's from the venture capital world. Gotcha. If that's your, if that's your thing. Well, I mean, all of those books sound great. Some of them are on my to read list, but I haven't put the Simon Sinek ones. Um, I just don't vibe with the style, but I think that the other ones are definitely, um, on my list and, and we'll, we'll read soon. And I think any medical resident or student with free time, which, isn't many of them, but if you have free time and you want to do a bit of reading, I think those would be a great uh, for entrepreneurship perspective. Well, just wanted to thank you again for coming on. Happy to give you this time to plug, attend any of your books, your other ventures or your socials to kind of round out the experience. And thank you again for coming on this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if, if you want to hear more from from my voice, you can go to Honey Meets Medicine. Uh, it's the podcast that uh, Alicia Taylor and I host. Uh, if you like to read, I just came out second edition of my book, uh, literally like the last four weeks called the physician philosopher's guide to personal finance. And then, uh, you can find me on Twitter. It's at TPP underscore MD, uh, which is probably where I'm most active for, for social media. And, uh, most importantly attend is helloattend.com. We can help you out with a variety of topics, particularly right now in the, you know, upcoming things that are happening, student loans and disability insurance are two ways that we're serving people right now. Uh, So if you need help with those two things, then helloattend.com is the place to go.